Well, good morning, and today we're going to continue our Urban Legends series with another common myth that uh, maybe many of you have heard, maybe many of you have said or, or at least thought about at some point in your life, and that is the idea that forgiving means forgetting. Like most myths that uh, Christians believe, this one is a little bit of truth mixed with a lot of misunderstanding and in, in some aspects of misinterpretation of Scripture. So, to get at the heart of this legend, uh, let's first start with what we mean by the idea of forgiveness. That's really important. If you're going to try to figure out what forgiving means forgetting actually means, you need to start with the most important topic in that sentence, and that is the idea of forgiveness. First of all, let's be very clear about something up front. Forgiving, forgiveness, is not an option. It is a command that is reiterated over and over again, especially throughout the New Testament, and it is central to the gospel message that we believe is our hope for abundant life and for eternal life. And so in light of the fact that God has forgiven us through the sacrifice and the atonement and the work of Jesus Christ, we then, as his followers, are commanded to forgive one another. But what does this practically mean if we're trying to live it out in our life? Uh, here's what some people believe, or at least have been taught, that forgiveness actually means. But this is, these things are definitely not what it means but it's things that we may believe. First of all, forgiveness does not mean pretending that nothing happened. There are plenty of things uh, in our life where uh, somebody does something wrong, and then we have this idea that if we forgive them, then we have to just act like nothing happened. That's not what it means. Forgiveness is also not a never-ending series of second chances. You remember the, the statement, the, the common saying, fool me once, Shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. Yeah, well, sometimes we tend to over-spiritualize some things, and if somebody sins against us, we feel like no matter the circumstances, no matter what happens, if we truly forgive them, then they just pretty much can do whatever they want to from now on, and we have to forgive them for those same things over and over and over again. Clearly, that's not what Scripture is teaching at all. Forgiveness is not just a never-ending series of second chances. Forgiveness doesn't mean that all the consequences are removed. I'm not sure where this idea came from, but just because someone is forgiven of something doesn't necessarily mean that the consequences of their actions aren't still there. There are plenty of times in our life where we do things we shouldn't do. We may be very sorry, very repentant for them. We may beg for forgiveness and receive forgiveness, and yet the consequences are still there. Forgiveness is also not the immediate and full restoration of a broken relationship complete with all the same level of trust and privileges as before. Just because you forgive someone for something that they've done in the past doesn't mean necessarily that the relationship will be just exactly like it was before that event happened. There may be differences. There may be some things that are going to be the consequences of those actions, once again, are probably going to be there for a while. It's going to take some time and effort to work through those things, and in some instances it may never exactly be the same. But the culmination of these goofy ideas about our topic today, the culmination of it finds itself in the title. 
And that is that forgiveness means literally forgetting what happened completely. Wiping the slate so clean that every memory of the transgression disappears totally. I mean, isn't that the Christian thing to do? Isn't that what Christ has done for us? Isn't that what the Bible says God does when He forgives us? Well, let's take a moment and see what the Bible says that might lead us to believe that forgiving means forgetting. In Hebrews chapter 8, and if you have your Bible, if you'll go ahead and turn with us to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to start here in just a moment in chapter 7. But for right now, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12, I want us to read this verse together, and I think this is probably the verse where this idea comes from. There's a few others. Certainly, uh, the verse that teaches us that God removes us from our sin as far as the east is from the west, things of that nature. But here's probably the most clear representation of what people think when they say forgiving means forgetting, and it is Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For, and this is God speaking. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Well, here's how the logic works. If God no longer remembers our sins and we want to be like Christ, then shouldn't our forgiveness also include not remembering the sins of those we are forgiven? But here's the bigger question. And I think we probably need to answer this first because there's a much bigger theological backdrop to this that I don't think we take into consideration many times when we're discussing this topic. Can an omniscient God that knows all things about the past, about the present, about the future, truly ever forget anything. To be certain, the Scripture verse does say that He will remember their sins no more. But what does that mean? What does the word remember mean? To recall or to bring to mind an awareness of someone or something. But that's not the way the Bible is using it in this particular verse. It's also not the way the Bible uses it in many verses throughout Scripture. Scripture simply means when it talks about God remembering that God, when He remembers someone or something, is renewing or continuing His work with that person or with that thing. Let me, let me give you a, a for instance. For instance... When the Bible says that after Noah and his family floated around for nearly five months in the ark after the flood, Scripture says God remembered him. Now, that doesn't mean that Gabriel had to remind God that he left the hose on. That's not what that particular verse is even saying. What it means is that God now was going to renew his work in Noah's life. He didn't remember that he existed. He remembered and recalled what he was doing with Noah. And now, after floating around for some time, it was going to continue. Because here's the problem. If forgiveness means that God literally has no memory of past sins that he has forgiven, then he doesn't have any memory of Adam eating the fruit or David's adultery with Bathsheba and Peter's denial after the crucifixion or any other forgiven biblical sin well here's the problem with that how does he know what he's trying to accomplish with his redemptive plan through jesus christ if he doesn't remember any of the sins that have been forgiven clearly god doesn't forget anything and if that's true 
Now, he doesn't expect us to forget it either. So what does this passage of Scripture actually mean? Well, let's pick up in chapter 7 with verse 26, and let's find out together. Because everything that we need to know about forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is a gift from God, both for us, but also through us. So, so how is it possible? How is it possible for us to forgive others the same way that Christ has forgiven us? And here's where the author of Hebrews starts with this truth. Forgiveness is possible because of the person of Christ. Everything we're going to see today find it, finds its meaning, its foundation, its establishment, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so here's what we find. In verse 26 of chapter 7, Scripture says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First, for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever several things we need to understand in order to grasp the fullness of these verses there's there's some things that are going on that have happened earlier in hebrews that have happened throughout scripture that probably we need to at least address here to start off with this passage of scripture those few verses and what's going to follow is a comparison between the priests of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the priest of the New Covenant, or primarily what we see in the New Testament. Uh, ultimately, in just a moment, he's going to quote from Jeremiah chapter 31 about that Old Covenant and about the New Covenant that is to come. Well, here's some of the comparisons that he makes in these verses. The priests of the Old Covenant cannot remain because they're dead. So their work does not continue. The priest of the new covenant lives forever. He reigns forever. So his work is still reaping the benefits of what he has done. The old, the old covenant priest had to make daily sacrifices for their own sin and also for the sin of the people. But the new covenant priest made one sacrifice once and for all time. The old covenant priests were weak. They were sinful themselves, hence having to make not just sacrifices for the people, but also sacrifices for their own, own sin. But the new covenant priest was sinless. He has, not only was he sinless when he lived here, but he's been made perfect forever by his atoning work. Clearly, the new covenant priest is a description of Jesus Christ. It's a description of our Savior. And there's two really important things to understand about him as our priest. First of all, he knew our sin. Although, verse 26 reminds us that he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, still we're told in Scripture that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he humbled himself, even to the point of taking on flesh and dwelling among us, even to the point of dying, not just any death, but a death on the cross, Jesus Christ knew exactly what he was getting into. He knew exactly why he came, which is why in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. He knew what he deserved. He knew what he should receive, and yet he also knew why he came. And he came because we are sinful. He came because our sin could not be paid by daily, earthly, man-made sacrifices. And even though he deserved honor and glory, he knew how sinful we were, and he chose to take our place. He knew our sin, but he finished his work. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. It's important to remember why Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. He is not seated because he's tired. He is not seated because he failed. He is seated because he is done. He finished the work he came to accomplish. You've heard people say, if you want something done right, then you ought to do it yourself. Now, sometimes this is true, and sometimes this isn't true. There are plenty of times in my life that I'd prefer for someone else to do the work instead of me. Many times I don't even care if it's done well. I just don't want to do it. So it's totally fine with me if somebody else will do it. This happens a lot at our house. Each of our kids have responsibilities, chores that we have assigned to them. Some of them are daily chores they need to do. Some of them are weekly chores they need to take care of. Some of them monthly, some of them just as needed. That's all true, but still we ask them uh, to make sure those things get taken care of. Then there are times when something comes up and it needs to be done, but it's outside of their normal responsibilities. We still ask them to do it. On your job description, where you work or where maybe you used to work, it's that category that uh, falls under other duties as assigned. It's where, okay, this is not really part of my job description, but the boss has told me I need to do it, so I'm supposed to take care of it. And it's always amazing to me, and it would be amazing to you, at the pain and the suffering and the gnashing of teeth that occurs in my house when my kids are asked to do something that is outside of their normal assignments. It's just amazing at how they just weep and how they just begin to be bickering and fighting amongst each other. And I'll listen to the complaining for a while, but eventually I'll either get emotionally involved, verbally, or I will sarcastically thank them for all of their wonderful help and just get up and do it myself. Well, the moment I get up and start to go do something myself that I've asked them, told them to do, you have never seen a group of kids scatter and try to make up lost time and try to constantly be hardworking children than when that happens. I usually get a lot of apologies. I usually get a lot of promises. But at that point, it's a little late to start acting like you're obedient when I told you to do something and you didn't do it, so I'm getting up to do it myself. But then there are other times when there are jobs that literally I'm the only one in our house that can do it. The kids may try. They may want to help. But in the end, if daddy doesn't do it, it's not going to get done. Now, 
Things may change from time to time as the kids get older and they're able to do more things, but things like hanging a TV on the wall, things like backing a trailer, things like changing out the light bulb in, a sh in our chandelier that's in the foyer in our house, those things, no matter who is there or what they want to do, there's certain things that only I can do. They just can't do it. It's not necessarily true that they don't want to do it, but they can't do it. Here's the reality as we look at Scripture and we look at the priests of the Old Covenant versus the priest of the New Covenant, Jesus Christ our Savior. God used some great men down through the history of the Old Testament to get some things done for Him. But men ultimately will fail but when it came to paying for our sins when it came to paying the price for our disobedience and for our neglect when it came time to make that sacrifice jesus christ came to do it himself not only did he endure to the end but he said it is finished so what did he do? What did he finish? What is it that Christ came to do? That's a great question. And the second thing that we find from Hebrews chapter 8 is this. Not only is forgiveness possible because of the person of Christ, but forgiveness is possible because of the position of Christ. Verse 2 says, A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Here, here's what we find here. This, once again, the comparison between the sacrifices daily of the priests of the Old Covenant versus the sacrifice once and for all time from the priest of the New Covenant. He was the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. He can be our true high priest because ultimately he's the only one who could come and make that sacrifice for us. Now, interestingly enough, you look at biblical history and you think about all of the different requirements for being a priest. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. Now, the priests came from the tribe of Levi. They were the Levites, and that's sort of a prerequisite to being a priest but in this passage of scripture from what we just read it is a reminder that his ministry was from heaven not from earth he didn't need earthly associations in order to make him qualified to be the priest because he had all of the heavenly associations that he needed his ministry was from above and therefore it trumped everything that we needed on earth he came not just simply to offer a sacrifice on our behalf he came as the sacrifice for us and since his position as the high priest and sacrifice is true then it's also true that not only was he the ultimate sacrifice for our sin but it's also true that he is the ultimate mediator for our peace see jesus came not simply to uh not simply to pay the price for our sin but to repair the relationship that had been broken by our sin with our Heavenly Father. So in verse 5 it says, They serve, those things serve, as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. 
For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. See, the original tabernacle and temple were simply copies of God's heavenly reality. They were simply earthly shadows of that heavenly reality of the relationship that God would have with his people where his presence would be with them for all time. And he gave them to Moses, an earthly servant, who was to, to the very best of his ability, write down exactly what the tent, the tabernacle, and the temple ultimately would look like. But those things were nothing but shadows. And, and here's what he's trying to tell us. For us, now, in the new covenant, under the blood of Jesus Christ, to go back to the old covenant means giving up heavenly, heavenly realities for earthly imitations. In other words, to seek out an earthly priest is to forsake our heavenly high priest who died and who also lives again. He is the ultimate mediator for us between God and man. Let me put it to you this way. If I were to go to the White House and I were to stand there in the foyer of the White House and I were to say, hello everyone, my name is Alan Cottney and this is what I want you to do. And then I just started barking out orders and expectations for all of the staff and for all of the workers there at the White House. Now, as I'm being booted off of the property, it would become very clear to me and to everyone around there that my name is insignificant at the White House. It doesn't carry any weight whatsoever in that setting. Now, if the president comes out of his Oval Office and starts giving the exact same orders and commands that I did, then the staff starts moving. But why? He's just a man. He bleeds red just like me. We're both citizens of the United States. He gets one vote, I get one vote. I mean, what's the difference? Because he occupies the position that matters. His post makes his name above every other name in the United States of America and around the world in that place, in that setting. Now, if I come back here to College Road or I go to my house, then my name matters. But at the White House, nobody even knows who I am. Identity and position matter when it comes to authority. And here's something for everyone to keep in mind as you're thinking about the position of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, Scripture says, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If Jesus really is who He says He is, and He really does occupy the position that the Bible teaches us that he holds, then it is clear for us to understand that his name reigns supreme in all the universe. There is no setting. There is no place. There is no institution where the name of Jesus is not authoritative. You may not recognize it. You may choose to ignore it. But that doesn't change the truth. That doesn't change 
the fact. And if those things are true, then it is also true that forgiveness is possible because of the promises of Christ. He is who he says he is. He holds the position that only he can hold. And when he makes promises, you can take it to the bank. Verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on, that, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of, their, out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Here's the central theme of this chapter as we're thinking about Jesus Christ as our high priest, as our mediator, the one who sacrificed for us the only name under heaven by which people can be saved. Here's the central theme. The promises of the new covenant are far better than those of the old covenant. And here's why. Because even though God remembers our failure, verses 7 through 9 kind of show us that, that. These verses are showing us the author of Hebrews citing from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. He's reminding us that the old covenant was dependent upon the oath of man, of men, of mankind. But Israel didn't keep up their end of that covenant. Because of that, that covenant was null and void. God pays no more attention to it because it was based on the, the oath of men. So it's obsolete. It's passing away. As we'll see in a moment, it's vanishing. But even though that's true, because of the grace of God, we are reminded that God redeems our future. Yes, He remembers our failure, but He redeems our future. Now, it's interesting, because ultimately, in the New Covenant, God offers forgiveness, and if God's forgiveness means that he's forgetting, then how does he remember all of these failures? Well, ultimately, we get our answer in verses 10 through 13. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach, each one is his neighbor, and each one his brother, say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what's becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Here's the beauty of the new covenant in Jesus Christ through his blood, through his sacrifice. This new covenant is an oath made entirely by God. It is not dependent upon us, it is dependent upon him. It is eternally guaranteed. It is dependent upon God writing his laws on our hearts, in our minds, not on stone tablets. He doesn't just give us something and say good luck with that. No, he puts it directly into us. It's more about a heart change more than an expectations of us just actions changing. Then he says, after all that, then he says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins. No more. When we surrender to God through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then God forgives us and He changes us forever. He gives us new life. He gives us a new mission. He gives us a new eternity. If all that's true, 
then what does he mean by, I will remember their sins no more? A few years ago, I had a couple come to my office for marital counseling. Truthfully, they came several times. They were struggling in a lot of areas, and they had reached a pretty significant crossroads in their relationship. This was kind of their last-ditch effort to patch it up and try to move forward. So I met with each of them individually, and then I met with them several times as a couple. And over the course of these meetings, it became abundantly clear that one of their major issues was that there was a lot of resentment and bitterness about past mistakes and failures. Now, some of those were small, and we might consider them to be insignificant, but others were pretty big, and they would probably have shaken most of our relationships if they'd happened to them. But it was primarily an issue for the wife. Everybody kind of knew that. The husband knew that. The wife knew that. But in both of my individual meetings, they told many of the same stories. They both told me that the husband used to work far too long. He spent too little time at home with her and with the kids. They told me that at some point, through working all those long hours, he'd become too close to one of his female co-workers, and it put a strain on the marriage. They also told me that throughout the course of this time, he had become addicted to pornography and actually other substances as well. Interestingly, as I kept talking to them, I found out that they had worked through most of these issues. The husband was very repentant. The wife had said that she'd forgiven him. He wasn't just repentant in word, that's easy to do, but also in his actions. He had cut way back on his hours at work. He got reassigned to a completely different department so that he would no longer be around that female co-worker that he once worked around, wouldn't see her. He enrolled in counseling, put a lot of accountability in place for his addictions, including opening up to his wife, giving her all of his passwords, giving her access to all of his computers and to his phone and anywhere that he might have access to these things and, and wanted her to be a part of holding him accountable and she had in turn forgiven him they had moved forward together but here's the problem every time they had a disagreement every time an issue that would pop up in their relationship whether it was big or small she would inevitably bring up all of his past failures if he was 30 minutes late from work she would accuse him of falling back into his old ways of working eight hours a week. If he had to work with that old department that he used to work in on a project at work, she would remind him of the fact that he might be close to having an affair with that person, sometimes even accusing him of having an affair. If he was looking at his phone while they were at the dinner table or somewhere, while she was talking to him, she would ultimately accuse him of looking at pornography instead of paying attention to her. He looked at me, and this is what he said. It feels like no matter what I do now, I will forever be guilty of what I've already done. And I simply asked one question, both of them sitting there, to the wife primarily. But I I thought you 
said you forgave him. And she said to me, well, yes, but I can never forget what he's done. You see, even if we don't say that forgiving means forgetting, sometimes in our mind, sometimes in our application, sometimes in our practicality of living it out, we have this idea that forgiveness can't be complete unless we can totally forget about the things that have happened. But that's the problem. We don't understand what forgiveness is. So we struggle to pass on what Christ has done for us to others. Can I offer you just some information and maybe some advice that I think may help you and may even save some of your relationships? Here's the truth, okay? Here's the biblical truth. This verse doesn't mean that God doesn't remember our sins. It means that he doesn't recall our sins. You say, well, isn't that the same thing? No, not really. In other words, he doesn't bring them up again. God will no longer use our sins against us. After all, this is the sacrifice that Jesus made once and for all time. He took the punishment for the sins that we have committed. So if he's already been punished for the sins that God has forgiven us for, then what is there left to talk about? He doesn't bring them up against us ever again. Might I suggest to you that if you're not ready to stop bringing up the mistakes and failures of others, then you aren't really ready to forgive them in the first place. And if you aren't ready to forgive them, then here's the biblical truth. That says more about you than it does about them. God's grace and God's goodness and God's love and His mercy is not about us deserving forgiveness. It is about His offering it to us by the atoning work of Jesus Christ even though we don't deserve it. Maybe today, before you start worrying about forgiving other people, maybe today, for the first time in your life, you need to come and experience the forgiveness of a gracious God. Before you start worrying about offering it, Maybe today ought to be a reminder of what you've already received. See, you didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to earn it. The forgiveness that comes from God is not about your work. As a matter of fact, this whole chapter that we've been looking at today reminds us that the work of mankind was never going to be enough. We made promises that we could never keep. But our forgiveness is bound up in a promise that was made from a holy God and it will never be broken. You can be forgiven. And he remembers our sins no more. He doesn't bring them up again. He won't use them against us. As a matter of fact, even in the judgment seat, when we come before God and our sins are revealed, it is simply a reminder of what he has forgiven. It is, hey, in spite of what you've done, heaven is yours because of what Christ has done. There is no greater understanding of what our forgiveness to one another ought to look like than looking at what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's not about wiping away the slate as if it never happened. It's not about pretending it didn't happen. It's not about an unlimited amount of second chances. It's not as though we will never 
remember. But it is us saying to that person, I forgive you. I'm not going to hold this against you. This won't come up in future arguments. I'm not going to look back to this and remember what you've previously done. From here forward, I forgive you. And here's the beautiful thing. That's what Christ has done for us. So if you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in him, you've never repented of your sins, then you've never received the forgiveness that God offers to you. It's not because he hasn't offered it. It's because you have to receive it. And so, as we close out our time together this morning, let me encourage you. If you've never truly experienced the forgiveness of God, then today, I want to implore you to follow Jesus. He is the only high priest and mediator that can make that possible. Come to him. If you're here today and you've trusted Jesus as Savior, then we are reminded in 1 John chapter 1, we are reminded about the goodness and the grace of an almighty God who has forgiven us, who has offered to us something that is far greater than anything we could ever experience. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he told us to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us. That's what we've been called to do. That doesn't mean it's easy. Sometimes it's far more difficult than we want to let on. But after what he's forgiven us for, how can we not spread the love of Jesus even with those that have sinned against us? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, thank you just for the chance of being able to study your word and be reminded of the fact that ultimately our forgiveness of others is dependent upon you first forgiving us. Lord, we know that you know all things. We know that you've not forgotten a single thing we've ever done. And yet in spite of that knowledge, you love us and you call us to yourself and your desire is to use us for your glory. God, I pray that you would speak to hearts today. You would draw them to you. You would remind them of the forgiveness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And you would help us to be a forgiving people so that we're not weighed down with the bitterness, with the hatred, with the pain that the sins of this world affords us. God, may we let it go. May we look to you and we pray you'd use us for your glory as your people until you call us home to be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.